So we are in week three. Uh, our series is called Chasing the Wind, and it's a study of futility and fulfillment through the book of Ecclesiastes. We are doing a first five-part chunk of Ecclesiastes, and then we're going to pause for the Christmas season. And what we've learned so far is that life, though not necessarily meaningless as the NIV translates the word in Ecclesiastes, is more literally, life is but a breath. Life is fleeting. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And not only is it fleeting, but, but, but it's like a vapor and like a wind, like the breath that you breathe. It, it can't be grasped. It's not something that you can hold on to. It's not something that you can control or use for your own gain or benefit. And so what gain can we find in life in this world, he asks in the very beginning. And given the nature of the created world that we live in, we learned last week, trying to find profit and personal gain from life in this world through our own efforts is ultimately an exercise in futility, he tells us. It's something that we pursue in vain. To expect that the purpose of life is fundamentally uh, about gaining things for ourselves and pursuing our own desires and our own ends, he says, is fundamentally a misunderstanding of the nature of the reality of the created world we live in and the purpose for why God made you and me in the first place. And so Ecclesiastes, or in Hebrew, Kohelet, which translates the teacher, his intention will be to lead us away from this kind of thinking about how toil and effort and, and the routines of life are the means to an end, to gain something more than we already have, to, to find something that's finally going to satisfy us or make us happy or get us to the end goal of, of finally being fulfilled in living. To get away from that thinking then leads us to say, is there another way to think about life that God intended? And if so, how do we pursue that life instead? But before we can get there, he's been setting us up for this grand experiment, this case study that he wants to walk us through. And that's what we're going to do today. We've got a lot of ground to cover today because we're going to go through all of chapter two because we need to get to the end of his conclusion of this case study. And I, I think it'll be worth the time to get there. Uh, but because of that, we're not going to have a whole lot of time for personal application this morning. So I'm going to invite you as we're going through to think about how does this word connect to your life today? And then, of course, we're providing questions each week that will go deeper into how we can apply this word to our life, but it's most important to start with that we want to learn how to read Ecclesiastes in a way that can allow us to see our lives reflected in the words of God. So let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 16. He starts this experiment by saying, okay, so I, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone else who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. And, and even though, again, King Solomon is not mentioned in the book, we're supposed to immediately, if we were a, a Jewish reader, think about, oh, this is kind of, you know, what King Solomon was like, right? I've experienced much wisdom and knowledge. And so, so then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also to madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is a chasing after wind after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, 
The more knowledge, the more grief. So his first part of the experiment is he's going he's gonna to pursue wisdom. He's going to pursue intellectual pursuits and understanding and the philosophy of life and to understand how all of this thing works and what's the difference between wisdom and folly and madness. And, and, and maybe there's some way to find profit or gain because of how smart we can be in life. He says, maybe producing greater effort in sifting through what's known about life in this world and the nature of humanity and the science of it all will allow us to escape the folly of living and to actually find a way to produce a profit that is worth investing in. And he gets to the end of the experiment and he goes, you know what? Nope. (laughs) It's just a chasing after the wind. Now, it's interesting that the word madness here has the same root that he's used in other places, halal. So the word is halela. It's a kind of boastful arrogance that sets itself up against God rather than praising God. And as such, it becomes madness. It becomes irrational because how could you ever hope to set yourself against God? There are various versions of this root word halal that can be used in other places in the Bible to mean to shine. It can also mean to praise, or it can mean to be insane, (laughs) depending on how the author is using it. But when it's used in this latter sense, it's often linked with this idea of folly or foolishness, which is typically the opposite of being wise. Folly or foolishness is a a lack of good sense, or it's tragically foolish ideas or actions, one definition said, or I love this one, foolishness is an excessively costly or unprofitable undertaking. Isn't that kind of what Ecclesiastes is talking about? Halal, one person says, denotes a letting go of restraints and inhibitions, and entirely depending on the heart behind it, it can result in either a complete surrender to God's control or a detrimental flight without anyone at the helm. (laughs) Halal can turn to either the most holy expression of devotion or else a blasphemous display of total derangement. (laughs) Is there profit here, the teacher is wondering, through concentrated intellectual effort to distinguish between wisdom and folly more accurately and thus to escape this toilsome trap that life seems to be where we keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. In the end, there's no utility there. There's no destination. It's all useless and empty. And Kohelet explores that and he says, I don't think so. It's not that wisdom is useless, because he's actually using wisdom to conduct his experiment. But wisdom itself and intellect and, and smarts is not something that we can grasp hold of and control to our own purposes, and it can't extend your life in any way. Wisdom and knowledge might be useful to dispel our illusions, but the truth, once the illusions are dispelled can be hard to handle. So he turns to pleasure. Perhaps a concentrated effort in indulgence and enjoyment then will be the answer. Maybe somehow if he invests himself there, he'll find some reward for all of his work and his toil and his effort. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And and the word here for good in the Old Testament is tov, and that's going to come up again later. 
But that also proved to be meaningless or futile or futile. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good, what was tov for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. This word that is translated here as pleasure, one scholar suggested, is used in other places in the book for joy or gladness, which he says are also a gift from God. So we shouldn't think immediately that when he talks about pleasure that these are forbidden or guilty pleasures. It's simply looking for fun and enjoyment, recreation, leisure, things to to do with our free time that are fun. He's talking about simply doing things that bring gladness to the heart or make us joyful that we, that we like to do with our time. And yet he discovers that even in the pursuit of these things in the hopes of finding gain or fulfillment, they're just as pointless as wisdom and knowledge that are pursued for the same purpose because in the end, even enjoyment doesn't accomplish anything. And pleasure is just as often associated with fools as it is the wise. And it's the same as true as laughter. That's why he says laughter is, is madness, right? It's, it's all too often uttered by people who have no real grasp on the true reality of the world that they're living in. If you jump ahead to verse 6 of chapter 7, he uses a proverb that says, like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. So then he moves on to say, well, let's explore wealth in the world of stuff. And maybe if we just accumulate enough stuff, we'll find happiness. And so in verse 4, he says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. See, and that he undertook great projects suggests superhuman strength, which is why, again, Solomon is the the prime character, right? The, The one who would have the resources and the wisdom and the knowledge and the ability to pursue an experiment like this as he builds houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and all the fruit bearing trees. It it evokes a vision that he's he's trying to build a paradise. He thinks through his own efforts and through his wealth and through all his ingenuity, he can make this world a paradise for himself. Like God, this world he creates, he then begins to populate with people. Male and female slaves of various kinds and the children that are born to them under his rule. Enormous wealth is accrued through herds and flocks and silver and gold. The wealth of kings and provinces suggests that it's plundered wealth from conquering the surrounding provinces who now bow down and pay tribute and taxes to the king. All these people and all this wealth and all this stuff was acquired for his own personal gain to see if there was anything that he could get out of it. Whether it's to cheer him with his favorite music or songs in the night or to even cheer him in bed. 
And all of this, again, carries the connotation of King Solomon and his reign as the example of the person most likely to succeed in this kind of endeavor. However, the fact that Solomon is who we're supposed to think of also means that we need to understand that what the teacher is not telling us is that God was approving of all of this behavior. See, as we can see from the story of King Solomon's life, if you go back and you read in the, in the book of 1 Kings, that these were pursuits that were done apart from God. They were done without God. They were done in human strength and in human wisdom and out of our own desire. They're pursued through what Solomon uh, was ultimately chastised for by pursuing all these things in his own life. He had kind of drifted away from God in his pursuit of all of these things. So what is the Kohelet's final analysis in all of this stuff? As he does this experiment in verse 10 of chapter 2, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was all futility a chasing after the wind, because nothing was gained under the sun. There was no lasting fulfillment. There was nothing permanent that was gained. It was all like smoke in the wind. Now, there was some reward, he said. Taking delight in his labor was something he did find, and, and this is kind of a clue he's dropping for us that he picks up a little later, but, but even this enjoyment was temporary. It didn't lead to a lasting fulfillment. So he turns back and he looks at everything that he had done. He looks at everything that he had tried. Like he, he's come to retirement and he, he's finally sitting on his porch and, 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 and he's having a coffee or he's having a beer and he's thinking back on his whole life and everything that he's done. And he said, what, what all have I actually gained for all of my time and my labor and my toil? And in his final assessment, he says, on its own, it's all empty. It was just an exercise in futility. It was a chasing after the wind. In verse 12, he says, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also folly and madness. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? What more can anyone try than I've already tried to find happiness and to find fulfillment? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is futility. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool... The wise, too, must die. And there is the period at the end of the sentence. And it's the period at the end of your life and mine. Wisdom, indeed, is useful in our short time that we have to live life in this world. When we consider it against folly and foolishness, it's clearly better in the same way that light is better than darkness, because at least you can see where you're going through life. 
But the fact remains that in the end, the same fate awaits both the wise and the fool together, and neither will be long remembered in this churning history of the world in which we live. When all is said and done, death is the great equalizer for all of us. So even though it's far better to be wise than a fool, what gain does one get in the end by being wise? No matter how smart or wise you are, you still can't solve the problem of death. So for Kohelet at this point, his view of life is itself completely overshadowed by this experience of futility and the end of death for everyone, so much so that if this is all there is, he says, he confesses that he hates life. Verse 17, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it was meaningless. Now, he's going to use this word hevel, that meaningless or futility, four times in this section. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is futility. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, for a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. Parents? (laughs) You ever have those kinds of thoughts? This too is futility and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain, and even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is futility. And so he's reminding us again that those who seek to control their lives in order to to find personal gain and to create something for themselves that didn't previously exist are simply chasing the wind and grasping after things that cannot be obtained. You see, not only is this relentless pursuit of profit in this life persistently futile, but it's completely intolerable that anything you do gain in the short term is left to somebody else who might not be all that wise with what you've spent all your time laboring for. If you look at life from this point of view, life is indeed a heavy burden or a miserable business. These constant reminders of how our effort simply goes to futility keeps us up at night. It prevents us from sleeping because we're worried about how we're going to get off the hamster wheel and find a way to actually make a profit and make things work and to figure out the secret of life. All this would lead anybody's heart to futility, grief, and despair. And how much do we see this kind of grief and despair in the lives of men and women who we know and that we live with and that we hear stories of around the world because they're chasing after the wind? We've talked about this many times. One of the most ironic things about Western culture is that we live in the most prosperous nation that has ever existed and we're falling apart at the seams. The more wealth we accrue, the greater success we achieve, the more depressed and despairing we are. 
thousands of years ago. Kohelet told us why. It's chasing the wind. There's no happiness at the end of that rainbow. There's no pot of gold. There's no there, there. And yet we keep thinking that if we try harder, or if we learn more, or if we get better, or if we think we lose more weight and we're more beautiful, if we become more popular, that somehow we're going to make it in this life. And yet day in and day out, we can read the, the, the chapters and the verses of all of the celebrities and the wealthy people whose lives are falling apart, who are going through serial relationships. How many rock stars have died from overdoses? And yet in our minds, we think, no, that's the good life. That's how you know when you've made it. If I could just have a few more dollars in my bank account, then I might be happy. All the while, never realizing that thousands of years ago, the teacher Kohelet in Ecclesiastes told us, if you can't be satisfied with what you have, you'll never be satisfied with something more. If you can't be satisfied with what you have and with who you are, you'll never be satisfied with something more. So what advice is there for life in this world? Well, before we drive the car off the cliff into sheer madness and insanity and give up on life, right? He says there actually is a way of being in this world that represents the good life that God intended when he made this world in the first place. The Hebrew word we said for good is tov. And in the same way that he uses the word hebel or futility four times in the last section we read, he's now going to use the word tov four times to contradict the meaningless and the futility of chasing the wind and the life that never leads to satisfaction. And so in verse 24, he says, a person can do nothing better, nothing more tov than to eat, drink, and find satisfaction and find tov in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, to the person who toves him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who toves God. This too is meaningless in a chasing after the wind. Can you begin to, to sense a little bit of what's going on here? You see, the good life that Kohelet is looking for, the tov life, that we desire, that we hope exists, that we, we somehow want to achieve for the created, mortal, human being that was designed and created by God, eating and drinking and working through the daily routines of life is where you find the meaning. 
Literally, it says, to cause his soul to see the good in his work. Once we unmask the lie of chasing the wind and the lifestyle that never satisfies, and we tear the veil from the illusion that we all suffer under and that we live with in life in this world, we can begin to perhaps see or glimpse that there's another way of being in this world that God had intended from the beginning. Pastor and author Nathan Albert wrote in an article for the Covenant Companion magazine about this Hebrew word tov, and I just want to share with you what he said. He says, the Hebrew word tov is used hundreds of times through the Old Testament, and in the Greek equivalent, it is used numerous times throughout the New Testament as well. The word tov can mean good, it can mean beautiful, and it can mean working in the way that it was created to. So in the creation account, if you go back to the book of Genesis and you read through Genesis, Tov is used seven times as God reviews everything that he's created, right? He calls each work into existence. He calls it good. He calls it beautiful. He calls it working the way it was created to be. It's Tov, God says. When he created the trees and the birds and the sky and the water and the fish and the dirt and the sea and the land and the bugs... He said to each one of them as he brought them into existence, it's tov, it's good, it's beautiful, it's working the way it's supposed to. And then after he creates men and women, he creates humanity, and all creation is finished, he looks back on everything that he's made, and he said it's very, very tov. The good life. The tov life, the teacher tells us, entails viewing the daily routines of living, our eating, our drinking, our waking, our sleeping, our loving, our relating, all the things that we do with our kids and with our families and with our friends, just going through life day to day is the gift that God has given us. And if we can't be satisfied with the life we have and learn how to live it well, we're not going to be satisfied with something more or different or greater, because life comes as a gift from God, and we have to learn that our job is to be willing to accept the gift that God has given us. See, this way of life, this way of being in the world, he says, is from the hand of God. It's how we were created to be by the creator who designed us the way we are, who made the world the way it is, who made our lives the way we are, who gave us our DNA and our genetics and our family background and our origin stories. We are living the life that God has given us and we can either appreciate it and be grateful for what we have, even though it's in a messed up world, and find the tov in what God has given us, Or we can pine away, striving our whole lives to find something better, greater, different, more, only to be disappointed over and over and over again. To find tov, to find the good life, is to find genuine enjoyment in the life that we currently have. You see, with God, Life can be experienced and enjoyed the way he intended it. But without God, everything becomes wearisome, grief-stricken, and depressing. Nothing but futility and a chasing after the wind. It's life lived apart from God. Kohelet is trying to get us to see that is the life that is futile and empty. 
So it's madness and folly to spend your life pursuing the profit and the gain that we should know if we see the truth and we use our wisdom that is not there. We talked about this last week. What is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking can't be counted. But what we do discover, Kohelet tells us, is that it's the person who gives up this striving who gives up the pursuit of personal gain and looking out for number one and thinking that through our own strength and our own wisdom we can make a better life than we have and striving against God the whole time unwittingly. It's this person who gives up that control and recognizes that God is God and we are not that ultimately finds happiness, enjoyment, and an inheritance that will not fade. And that, my friends, leads us right to the New Testament and the good news of Jesus, doesn't it? In an unexpected way, the quest for what is good in life for human beings in terms of happiness and well-being has actually been successful. That which is good or that which is tov in the world God created turns out to be that which is good for us to pursue. Think about the words of Jesus again, in light of what we now understand about the words of Ecclesiastes. Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is your darkness? Does that take you back to Kohelet? And the wisdom versus the folly and pulling back the illusion of what life is really all about. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 16, 25, Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And if you remember the perspective of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. This will mean fruitful toil for me. My toil, my work, what I give myself to won't be futile. It won't be in vain. It won't be for nothing because I won't be doing it for myself. I'll be doing it for a greater purpose. I'll be doing it for a greater cause. I'll be doing it for the God who created me and the God who sent his son to save me and the God who designed me to be used before the creation of the world for the good works that he had prepared for me to do. And I'll find happiness and I'll find joy and I'll find meaning in life even through the hard times. Because God never designed me to be perfect, and God never designed this world to be perfect. What he designed is his love to perfect us. 
And he designed our relationship with him to be the perfect place where we find contentment and wholeness and happiness in him because that's why he created us. Those who have learned to find joy in the daily experiences of the life that we have as God intended, we'll find greater joy because they'll have found the source of joy, which doesn't come from life in this world. It comes from the life of heaven that has come down to earth to give life to us as a gift. Those who depend on God for wisdom will find greater wisdom, the New Testament tells us. Those who recognize that death is the ultimate statement of our creaturely limitations and our need for a savior and somebody to rescue us from the the sin and the evil and the brokenness and even death in this world are the ones who discover new life even beyond this world. Men and women, that's the good news. And Kohelet has foreshadowed for us how important it is to understand the life and the teaching and the gift that Jesus offers us. And how easy it is for the veil of pursuit of things and happiness and our own desire to come back over our eyes, even for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And to believe that somehow if we put a religious stamp on it and we say we're doing it for God and we're doing it in a Christian way, we can still pursue all that the world has to offer because we've got our get out of hell free ticket in our pocket. Those who recognize that death is the ultimate statement of our creaturely limitations and our need for a savior have the veil torn away and they discover that we can ultimately receive happiness and joy as our inheritance in the gift of God himself. And so I want to close for us today with the words of 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, and I invite you again to listen to the words of the New Testament through the eyes of what we hear and learn from the teacher. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trial and the toilsome, weary nature of life in this world. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Tov, the good life what everyone's looking for, what everyone's selling, what everyone's hoping that they can manufacture or create or grab onto is given to us as a gift. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the purpose of why God created you and why he sent his son into the world, the salvation of your souls. Men and women, as we explore the good life together, Let us again 
Allow God to strip the veil from our eyes, to see life for what it is, and to receive every moment and every relationship and every possession that we have, not as things that we can possess or own or use for our own happiness, but as gifts of God to be stewarded and enjoyed and given away for the blessing of others and in the name of His kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you do not leave us abandoned or alone. You do not let us run off without coming after us because you love us and because you desire us to, to know the truth and in the truth to be set free and in our freedom to find relationship with you at the center of our lives, to find the good life that you had intended, to find the good that is in you. Forgive us, God, for the ways that we allow the world to speak its lies into our lives and to go after the things of this world, thinking that somehow in our own wisdom, in our own strength, we can produce a better life than the one that you've already given us. Help us to receive every moment and every relationship as a gift and to steward wisely those gifts that you've given us and to see in them the blessing that you have given us to find joy in satisfaction without ever having to even work for it. And we'll thank you for the salvation that you give and the gift of your presence through your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.